please, and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3 today. Exodus chapter 3. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great Welsh preachers of his day, once said, the man who does not see the gospel in the Old Testament will not see it in the New Testament either. Because the moment a man sees the gospel in the new, you see it everywhere in the old. And that is, in fact, at the, the foundation of why we're going to take this time to go through the book of Exodus together. Not merely to educate ourselves in ancient history, not merely to increase our knowledge of Bible trivia, but we do it because the same God who is the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and all the Israelites in this time is the same God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God of our fathers, and the God of us today. His plan of salvation in, in those days was, in fact, the same as it is today. He was working with the same plan, the same covenants. And the way that he dealt with his people, even this three and a half thousand or so years ago with Moses and the Israelites, teaches us how he deals with us today. And who he was then is who he is today. And so we're spending this time going through Exodus together because we want to know the gospel better, because we want to know more of, of who Jesus is, what sorts of things Jesus, as our Redeemer, Mediator, was called to do on our behalf. And there are a few places, I believe, where we see that as clearly as we see it in the book of Exodus. So that's sort of the big picture goal. That's why we're in Exodus. And and chapter 3 in particular is such a wonderful chapter for helping us learn the, the good news, to learn who our God is. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 12 from this chapter, although really the focus today will be on verses 1 through 6. It's such a, a dense and a rich and a good chapter that we just can't rush through a chapter like Exodus chapter 3. There's too much to savor in this chapter so really, 1 through 6 will be where we spend the majority of our time today in Exodus chapter 3. So uh, let me ask if you're able, please join, join me in standing as we hear God's holy word read for us today. Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land 
to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Heavenly Father, this is your word that is given to us by the inspiration of your Spirit for our growth in Christ-likeness, for our salvation through the blood of Christ, to teach us the way of discipleship on the path of holiness. And so, Lord, as you reveal yourself to us today through your word, we ask that you will give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Father, may we, may we hear your word and may we listen. May we store it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Lord, by the grace of your spirit, we ask, continue your patient work in us. Amen. Please be seated. So, J. Alec Mautier passed away this week. That's not a name known to many, although he was a, a British evangelical Bible scholar. He was 91 years old, uh, has contributed much, and, and it was notable to me in particular because one of the best commentaries on the book of Exodus that I have been reading as I study these passages is by Alec Mautier. He was an Old Testament scholar. He wrote a just a fairly short, as commentaries go, a short commentary on the book of Exodus. Uh, and it's, it's far and away been the best, most useful one to me, so much so that if anyone was looking for something that's very accessible, you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek to, to learn from it. It's very accessible to everyone. Uh, if you were looking for something to read as we go through this, to study it alongside the, the sermon series, that would be the one to get by Motier, that last name is M-O-T-Y-E-R. He said one time he did not consider himself a scholar, just a man who loved the word of God. Which is ridiculous. He was a wonderful scholar. He, he was a great Old Testament scholar, but he was very, very humble. Uh, and so this week there were a number of tributes that were written by different men to Alec Motier in light of his passing. Uh, one of my favorites that I read was by Tim Keller, who explained what an influence Matir had had on his life. And he said the most influential thing. He had one time been at a, a seminar where Matir was speaking, and someone asked him to explain the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so he went on to note a couple of the differences, but then he said this. Keller wrote that he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. And he said, they would have said, this is after the Exodus, while they're wandering in the wilderness, he said, an Israelite would have said something like this in sharing his testimony. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death, but God looked on us with mercy and grace, and our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. 
We trusted in the promises of God. We took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and He led us out. And now we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have His presence in our midst. So He will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And Matir said, if you think about this, a Christian today, giving his testimony could say the same thing almost word for word. The concepts and the ideas are are exactly the same that we too were once slaves in bondage, not to the Egyptians, but, but to sin. And we and our God looked on us with mercy and grace and, and he gave us a mediator, one who goes between us and God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And and we trusted in his promises and we come under the blood of the Lamb for our protection, and he delivers us. And we still are on our way to the promised land, not the land of Canaan, of course, but our true everlasting home, the new heavens and the new earth where God is guiding us. And through blood sacrifice, we are assured of the presence of Jesus with us at all times. Not the blood sacrifice of animals, but the greater, better, truer sacrifice once for all of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he he shared this, he, he brings together the Old Testament and the New in a way that helps us to see how much we have to learn from reading and giving our full attention to something like the book of Exodus, where God is, is doing this not merely for his people then, but this is to teach us today. This is to show us God's nature, who he is, his character traits. It's to show us what redemption is like. We don't have to look on this as being something ancient and foreign and so distant from our experiences. The reality is because human nature never changes, because God never changes, we can read this and say, this is our experience today. Some of the details have changed, but so much is the same for us. All the saints in the book of Exodus, were saved by the grace of God, a God who looked on them in his grace and mercy before they looked to him, a God who pursued them and, and redeemed them completely by his own work, in his own way, in his own time. And only after he redeemed them did he give them the law. I, I don't know about you, I remember a time in my own life when I was very confused about the Old Testament. I had this vague idea in my mind that in the Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law to some acceptable standard, whereas in the New Testament, now we're saved by putting our faith in Christ. Well, we study it and we see that's not at all the case. That all the saints in Exodus and the Old Testament, they were saved by grace, through faith. It was not by keeping the law. We'll see that they're not, they don't even receive the law at this point, and yet they're saved by the grace of God. One thing that is, is so clear to me in Exodus chapter 3 is the reality that Christianity is about God. That Christianity first and foremost is about God in his glory, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in all his infinite perfections, in all of his eternal beauties as he in his mercy and grace chooses to reveal himself to us for our good and for our salvation, us who who have done nothing to deserve the grace of God, this infinitely glorious, beautiful God will come down and and mercifully, in a way that we can handle, 
in a way that won't kill us. He reveals himself to us for our joy. He reconciles us to himself. That's the, that's the essence of what Christianity is. It's not about us. It's not about our, our goals or achieving our dreams or being fulfilled or any of that. It's about the unique glory of God who is holy, holy, holy. Even as Moses in chapter 3, he is treading on holy ground, I can't help but have some sense that as we read chapter 3, as we study it together, that we are doing the same thing. That as we read it, we too are, are reading the word of God given to us for our salvation, for our edification. And it becomes easy for us. We're familiar with it. We're used to it. We, we have it so easily. It's easy to become very familiar and casual. And yet I have the sense in it, reading a text like this, this is holy ground for the Lord to invite us to read, to stand in his presence today. That's what Christianity is, to, to gaze at God, to be in his presence and to know him, is, is to be humbled by it. We can't be in the presence of God and come away unchanged. It's just not possible. So I want to I br- sort of look at three aspects of the presence of God in the, these verses. First, to see that it is a humbling vision of God. It is a purifying vision of God. And it's a sustaining vision of God. It's humbling, it's purifying, it's sustaining. First of all, it is a humbling presence of God to have this sense that we are standing on holy ground, even to, to read and to study and to be invited to... to hear a text like this, even as Moses has this encounter, and here he's wandering in the wilderness, as you saw last week, he spent 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. 40 years, and here at some point, 40 years down the road, he's, he's wandering on the west side of the wilderness, and he sees this sight, and he has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. That's the first title. Verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Now, the first introduction is, it tells us, Moses encounters the angel of the Lord. But in all of the subsequent verses, we are told that this is God who is speaking to Moses. That it is the Lord. In fact, we get to these It'll be next week when we finally get to verses 13, 14, where God reveals his name to Moses, this, uh, this central passage where he says, I am who I am. This is the Lord himself who is talking with Moses, and yet at first he's called the angel of the Lord. And so we're immediately presented with this question, almost this dilemma, who is this in the bush who is both a, an angel that is a messenger sent from God and yet is also God himself? Who are we dealing with here? Who was Moses dealing with here? Well, the vast majority of theologians throughout the ages, from, from Augustine, Irenaeus, many of the early church fathers, through, through Calvin and the Reformers to today, including Mautier, who, who I read on this passage, all of them leave no doubt in their mind that the one that Moses encounters in the bush is a pre-incarnate uh, vision or encounter, a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. That is, it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. 
before he has become incarnate, before he's taken on flesh and been born, here he is appearing, showing himself to Moses in this bush. Now, the text gives us no details to that. He doesn't identify himself with respect to his Trinitarian status, but he says he is the Lord. He is God Almighty who appears to Moses in this bush. We sing at Christmas the words, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He's not veiled in flesh at this point. Perhaps we could say here he's veiled in this flame of fire through which he chooses to reveal himself to Moses. But Moses has an encounter here with God in the fire. In this fire that is burning on this bush, and yet he makes a point to tell us the bush is not consumed. That's what draws his attention at first, that here is this fire that is not burning the bush on which it is placed. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is a fire which is absolutely pure fire. In other words, there is no ash, there's no soot, there's no wood being burned up, there's no uh, compound of energy sources going on here. It's pure fire, it's nothing but fire that is its self-sustaining fire. Most fire, if it, if it did not have something to burn, it goes out. It's, it's dependent on the fuel, the energy source, the wood. This is a pure, self-sustaining fire. It needs nothing to feed it. It needs nothing to keep it going. It's divine fire, the presence of God himself. And Moses is both drawn to this fire and warned to stay away from the fire. God's first words, he calls to him, Moses and Moses, don't come. Don't come any nearer. It's, in fact, isn't that like fire? We're always drawn to fire. You have a campfire. Everyone huddles around it. We're drawn to it. And yet, we know not to come too close because it's dangerous. It will hurt you. And so it is here, not because of the fire being hot, but because the fire is the manifestation of God himself. This is holy ground, and it's holy for one reason, because God is there. Because God is there, and the danger is not the heat of the fire, it's the possibility of death by holiness. That for Moses, as a, a natural human person, a sinful human person, to be in the very presence of God is dangerous. Right? His, his first emotion is not ecstasy, it's not, this is amazing. It, it's literally life-threatening. To be in the presence of a holy God without a mediator, without a, an appropriate sacrifice to cover for sin is, is dangerous, and the Lord tells him not to come close. Habakkuk says, Lord, you are, your eyes are too holy to look on sin. <clears throat> your eyes are too holy. There's a, there's a holiness about God which is, is dangerous to sinners. We cannot be in his presence on our own. And so Moses is in a, a dangerous position on holy ground, and the Lord tells him to take off his shoes, for the ground on which he is standing is holy ground. As I was studying this this week and, and trying to wrap my head around the reality that's going on in this passage, which is is difficult to do, to, to try to comprehend what it is that Moses met God in a fire and was warned not to come close. As I was doing that, I, I found a comment, um, somewhat unrelated, by R.C. Sproul, who said, 
A recent survey found that the reason many people gave for why they had stopped going to church was because they found it boring. And here I'm trying to comprehend what it was for Moses to be in the presence of a holy God such that his life was endangered. And and to to realize that a lot of people, they don't come to church regularly. It's boring. And to to feel the contrast between those two and, and to think Moses at this moment must have been feeling many different emotions but I'm almost certain that boredom was not one of them because there's nothing boring about being in the presence of a holy God. There's simply nothing boring about being drawn to the presence of an eternal, glorious God and at the same time cautioned that to get too close to this God would mean death because you're on holy ground. And, And I worry for us as well that we perhaps are losing the conviction that when we gather for worship, we gather in the presence of God. I worry because of how easy it is for us these days in the society in which we live to become so focused on ourselves, our preferences, on our needs, on our feelings, that we lose the sense of what is truly going on in worship. We lose the sense that when we gather together as the body of Christ, This is not merely a gathering of of believers, one with another, for mutual encouragement, although it is that. But first and foremost, this is a meeting of the covenant God with his people. That we start our service with a call to worship, and it's not the, the presider up front calling you guys to worship. It's the Lord himself calling all of us to come, to sing our praises, to enter into his presence, to open our ears, to hear his word taught, to receive his grace for us in his word and in the sacraments, to respond appropriately by by worshiping with our voices, by worshiping in song, by worshiping in giving, by worshiping in in taking part of the sacraments, by worshiping and reading together the the word and listening to it taught and and proclaimed. We're very casual in Southern California. I I know that and I like that and I appreciate that, but, but I wonder sometimes if it's too casual not in clothes, but in attitude. If, if the attitude of our hearts can be too casual. Here is Moses in the presence of a God whose perfection has this radiating power to destroy impurity in his presence. And to contemplate that we are in the presence now of a God who, on the one hand, could be so dangerous, and yet here we are through Christ. We have been given the, the blessings and the benefits that we come into his presence with no fear because he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That we recognize the character of God who cannot stand to be in the presence of sinners, and yet through Christ, we who once were far off, we have been brought near. He has reconciled us, that we now do draw near to this holy God. And we do so because we don't come in the confidence of our own works. We come with the confidence that we are clothed in the very righteousness Christ. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into his presence? It's, well, on his own merits, it's Christ and Christ alone who can come into God's presence without fear because he, the perfect son of God, is perfect. And the, the goodness and the wonder and the grace of the gospel is that that, that righteousness that is Christ, he gives it to us. 
He gives it to us as a gift that we now come into the presence of this God. And rather than hearing the message to Moses, stand back, we hear the opposite message through Christ, draw near, come close, sit at the feet of Christ and listen and learn and worship. It's humbling, but it's, it's joyful, it's good, it's merciful. We also see that, that this vision of God for Moses is a purifying vision of God. Here's Moses standing at this bush and his bare feet warned not to come too close because of the danger of death by holiness. This is a, a purifying, a transforming vision. I, I imagine for Moses that as he was standing there, there was no temptation that could have come into his mind at that point that, that could have overcome him. Knowing with this, this all-consuming knowledge that he was standing in the presence of God, I imagine there was no temptation that could have overcome him in that moment to be so taken by the presence of God, to be so alert and, and awakened to the holiness of God. There was just no temptation, I imagine, that could have come over him at that point. He's overcome not just with the holiness, but, but God speaks to him here. He speaks of his faithfulness, that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Speaking of his faithfulness, that despite the many long years, he hasn't forgotten his people. Speaking of his mercy to his people, his grace, his loving kindness, that, that he sees them. He hasn't forgotten them. He knows their affliction, and he's come. He's coming now to deliver them and to rescue them and that he's going to be with them. I imagine any temptation that normally could have seized him, if it had come at that moment, would have absolutely no power over Moses. I think at that moment he would have just scoffed at the very idea of entertaining or indulging in sin when he's in the presence of a God. He would have scoffed at temptation, not because Moses was a man with exceptional self-discipline, not because he had developed some good system for resisting temptation. It was because he was in the presence of God. And I believe in that is the key to walking in holiness. How do we do it? it it's, we know how difficult it is. What's the key to growing in holiness? It's, it's not going to be putting our trust rock bottom in our own self-discipline, our own ability to, to just get it done, to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Rather, it's, it's to be in the presence of God, to live our lives consistently day to day with the knowledge that we live in the presence of God, a God who's perfect in holiness, and yet he invites us. He invites us to, to come near, not to stand far off, but to come near to enjoy his holiness. This is what I believe John is talking about in 1 John when he talks about walking in the light, coming out of the darkness. Walking in the light is to walk in the presence of God. And when you know yourself as, as one who has been welcomed by grace into the presence of God, I believe temptation loses its power. It has no power over the saints who are walking in the presence of God. Our task is to, to learn to see ourselves this way, to learn to see ourselves this way, and that is also point three, the sustaining vision of God. It's the sustaining vision of God for Moses. This is what will sustain him. 
as we said last week, Moses at this point started his, his life being trained in Pharaoh's house and, and was raised up trusting in himself, trusting in his own ability to be the deliverer of God's people, to, to go out and to begin doing it in his own way. And at this point, he has been humbled of that idea. Humbled of that idea. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. His own countrymen rejected him. He had to flee for his life into Midian, where he's now spent 40 years. 40 years. He's been appropriately humbled. Perhaps, you see in this passage, it almost seems like it's too much humility. He, he doesn't think he can do it anymore. He's gone from trusting in his own ability to deliver the Israelites to now saying, well, Lord, it can't be me. It can't be me. I can't do it. He has been humbled. He's been broken to the dust. And I believe that's exactly where God wanted him all along. He's a different man. It reminds me of something Chris McClellan used to say. He was one of the elders at a church I attended 13 or so years ago. He always said, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. In other words, God wasn't sitting around waiting to find just the right person who could be a deliverer. He wasn't waiting for that time who he, for someone who he could use to redeem Israel. And then finally he found Moses and said, there, finally, I've got one. Because he does not call those who are qualified. Rather, he had chosen Moses for this task since before he was born. But of course, Moses, being born as a sinful person like the rest of us, God had to do some work on him before he was ready. He did not call him because he was qualified. God would qualify him because he had been called. And that's the way it is with all of us. God doesn't call us to do certain tasks because he senses that we're qualified for them. He calls us, and he begins and continues his patient work in us of making us qualified. If you're sensing that perhaps the Lord has, has been working on your heart to, to call you towards missions, it will not be because you are qualified and, and you're not able to just brush it off and saying, no, Lord, not me. I'm not qualified for that. I couldn't possibly do it. doesn't matter. God does not call those who are qualified. He calls people, and then he qualifies them. And now the reason for Moses that he is now qualified to lead the people out of Egypt is this. Because he's been humbled, and now he's had a life-transforming encounter with the living God. And having been humbled to the dust by his experience now, he no longer thinks quite so highly of himself. He's not so self-assured and brash and ready to take on the world. He's no longer trusting in himself, so what is he trusting in? What is it then that's going to sustain him? What's going to keep him going through the next 40 years of leading this rebellious, obstinate people through a desert? I believe it's, it's this, and only this, the vision of being in the presence of a glorious God that will sustain him, that will give him the strength and the perseverance to continue going even when life is difficult, even when all the Israelites will again try to reject him from being their deliverer and will complain and will grumble and will moan. What will keep him going? It's not going to be that he's confident in his own abilities. It's going to be that he knows that he has received a call from the living God. Earlier this week, I had an opportunity to meet with some of the church planters in our presbytery. And 
uh, we got to talk shop a little bit and to hear about their experiences and the ministry that they're doing. And they shared something of the, the difficulties and the frustrations that they were facing. And it was nothing unique or all that special. It was just the regular frustrations of life. The regular frustrations of doing ministry in a fallen world where all of our work is regularly beset by thorns and thistles. And they talked about the need for patience and for perseverance. Pastoring a church can be slow work, especially in church planting. Some of those guys, the majority of the people who come in their congregations are not Christians yet. And because they're not Christians, they, they don't act like Christians yet. They don't value what God tells us to value. And he said it, it takes so much patience to continue this slow, patient work of ministry. And to do that, you, you can't rely on your own self. If you're relying simply on the fact that, that you have a passion for this work that you've begun, well there will come a day when you, you don't feel any more passion for this work, when you're worn out, beaten down. If you rely on the fact that, that you just have a sense of compassion for people and you want to help the hurting, well, that will run out. There will come a day when you don't feel any compassion for these people anymore because they've grumbled against you one too many times. They've, they've asked to go back to Egypt one too many times. If you rely on the fact that you're good at what you do, well... There will come a day when you do not feel like you're good at what you do. What will sustain them in the work of ministry? What will sustain Moses through the next 40 years of pastoring the people of Israel? If not this, it must begin with a sense of great personal humility, which is in fact often expressed in doubts and fears of inadequacy, but to have that humility and adequacy met and matched by an overwhelming sense of the glory of God who has a purpose to redeem his people and who will by no means give up on them at any point. That is a sustaining vision to keep him going. And I ask for us as a church, what will, what will give us as a congregation the strength to continue going when it seems difficult, when it seems undesirable, when it seems like this patient work is not getting us anywhere? Well, it won't be the fact that, that we just have a general desire to, to do good, to help people, to live out certain values, because those will dry up. What will get us there will be a, a vision of a holy, glorious, righteous God. And if, if what we do is always informed by the presence of God, that we are daily walking in his presence, sustained and preserved by him to do his work, that is what sustains you in the work of ministry, in the work of life, in the work of personal discipleship, following Jesus, in the work of putting sin to death when it seems as though you've met and tried to resist the same temptation a thousand times and it comes that thousand and first time. What keeps you from just indulging if not that, that you know yourself to be living in the presence of a holy but infinitely merciful God who loves you. And in his presence, the power of temptations will dry up before your eyes. Now, I want to quickly show us one more thing about the sustaining presence of God as it relates to the book of Exodus. 
because what's so special about the burning bush and the book of Exodus is that it's not just a one-time encounter that Moses is going to have with God at the bush. It's not just this one day, perhaps these few minutes, however long this lasts, that now he's looking back to this experience for 40 years, and at some point he's like, remember 39 years ago? It's not just this, but it, it goes on. And here's how we see it in the book of Exodus. There is a theme that runs throughout the entire book of Exodus of God in fire. This is where it begins with Moses at the burning bush. God reveals himself in fire. We see it, and I want to go quickly through these, in the desert with the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. We see it, especially at Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, which is where Moses is right now, where it says, he says the promise in verse 12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's because he's at that mountain right now. He is at Mount Sinai, a.k.a. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Two names, same place. Don't be confused. And so what Moses does now, him and God alone, he will bring all of Israel back to that same spot. And they will see the same thing, not in a bush, but now in grand scale with the entire mountain enveloped in fire and smoke of the presence of God. But I want to point out one more that is easily missed, and that is the menorah. Do you remember the menorah? The, the golden lampstand that was inside the tabernacle? That you can go later and read, I believe it's chapter 27. Mos the Lord gives Moses the instructions for building the menorah, gripping reading, all of the dis instructions for building furniture for the tabernacle. But what's so interesting is he tells him to build this lampstand out of 75 pounds of pure gold. This is a, a fairly imposing piece of furniture. And do you remember how it's decorated? It, so it holds seven oil lamps on top that are burning, and it's decorated with leaves and with branches and with flowers and with little representations of fruit. This is decorated as though it's a bush, and it's burning on top. There's this symbolism to the menorah in the tabernacle that, that takes us back to the burning bush that God gives them this little representation of the burning bush to take with them. So that when they leave Sinai, they've been there for so long receiving the law of God and building the tabernacle, and they're going to set out. Numbers chapter 10, they set out into the wilderness, and they go and they wander. Do they leave the presence of God? Are they going out into the wilderness on their own, thinking back, remember when we were with God? Not at all. Because God gives them this symbol of the burning bush that will be with them wherever they go that is always set in the very middle of the camp. There is the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle is the burning bush. And it was up to the priests, the Levites, they had duties very specifically to tend to that so that it didn't go out. Because that was the symbol of the presence of God in the middle of the people. And wherever they went, the tabernacle was with them. It was the burning bush. God says, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. Because his presence would go with the people wherever they were. And so it's, it's not just this one-time thing where Moses has this mountaintop experience which changes him forever, but this is simply the beginning. 
the beginning of God dwelling in the midst of his people and saying, from now on, this holy ground goes with you. The presence of God goes with you. And that says to us that, that if you feel today that you're wandering in the wilderness, and you look at that and you say, oh, to be Moses, oh, to know ourselves, to be in the presence of God. Well, what this tells us is, is that his presence does not leave his people. He comes and he doesn't go away. He will go with them all across the wilderness for those 40 years until they get to the land of Canaan and even then. God's presence goes with us and we don't have a menorah. We have something far better. We have the spirit of the living God given to his people to dwell within us. So do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you the thanks and the praise and the glory today. For although you are holy beyond all comprehension, you are also merciful beyond all believing. And you have come to us, drawn us to yourself, adopted us into your family, made us your sons and daughters, and given us of your spirit. Father, what have you withheld that is necessary for us? Everything, all the blessings in heaven and earth are ours. Lord, would you establish us in your grace? Would you, would you confirm us in the goodness of your mercy that we might know your presence with us, that you never leave us and you never forsake us? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.